Duke's Mayo. Do you get it? Because only the ones that get it really get it. Your friends get it. Your mom gets it. Your grandma gets it. Your neighbors get it. Sometimes a dog gets it. Get out of there. What else? Uh, your potato salads get it. BLTs get it. Tailgates get it. And restaurants get it, too. By now, even you probably get it. So get it today. Made without any sugar since 1917, Duke's is that little southern something that makes good things better. Get Duke's. It's got twang. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. This week's episode was curated a little bit differently than past episodes. We are really, really excited about it. Natalie, do you want to tell them a little bit about it? Sure. So this week's episode was actually suggested to us by someone with a personal connection to the victim in the case. As a result, she was able to get us in touch with the victim's family and we were able to get personal statements from them. And so I feel like Today's episode really has that personal touch compared to a lot of the other episodes that we do. And we're so grateful for Sandra's family willingly talking to us. So thank you. And I hope that we do her story justice. A big thank you to Murder Diaries listener, Alex. Thank you so much for facilitating this episode with the statements and information that you were able to give to this podcast for this episode. To Sandra's family, it's absolutely our honor to tell her story this week. We hope, like Natalie said, that we do it the most justice that we possibly can. Without further ado, this is the story of Sandra Elaine Stevens. Sandra Elaine Stevens was born March 4th, 1993 in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. She was half Peruvian on her mother's side and absolutely gorgeous. She attended Putnam City High School, where she graduated in 2011. Now, Sandra was a bit of an athlete, and she played volleyball, soccer, and she ran cross-country. Sandra loved to express herself through the art of beauty as well. She loved everything that had to do with hair, makeup, fashion. Her sister Jackie remembers her always making sure that her hair and her makeup was done perfectly for school. She always wanted to make sure that she was looking perfect for her day at school. Her sister further recalls that Sandra attended modeling classes, and her mom tells us at the Murder Diaries that Sandra enjoyed theater growing up, and she actually acted in quite a few productions. It really sounds like she was just looking for creative outlets, and she was able to do just that. She seems to have been a very expressive soul. I don't think anybody could explain who Sandra was better than her loved ones. And we are lucky enough here at the Murder Diaries to have a statement from Sandra's sister, her mom, a childhood friend, 
and her fourth grade teacher. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to read those statements exactly as they're written verbatim. This is what Sandra's mom has to say about her daughter. Sandy was 5'5 and weighed 135 pounds. Sandy was a happy girl. She had friends through all walks of life. Sandy was very family-oriented. Sandy went to school for cosmetology. She loved doing hair. Ever since she was a little girl, she loved doing Barbie's hair. She was a very independent woman. When she was 21, she loved going out with friends. Sandy was a very loving girl, especially by children. Sandy started babysitting at a young age. She had the most loving, welcoming, and bright smile. During high school, Sandy played volleyball, golf, cross country, and soccer. She wanted to try a little bit of everything. She also did theater. All throughout elementary and middle school, she did all sorts of plays. I really connect with who Sandy's mom describes her as because I too was really into acting growing up from the ages of like 13 to 18. I was doing acting classes, acting competitions, working with an agent and a manager. Now, it didn't go anywhere for me, of course, as we know, but um, I can connect just with that love of acting. I also connect with Sandy in that she started babysitting at such a young age. I started babysitting at 11 years old, and I continued to babysit and nanny all the way through grad school. I know that's a lot about myself, but it always just feels really special when I'm working on a case and I connect so heavily with a victim in one aspect of their life. And it's also a good reminder that these stories we research every week, these girls could have been us. And that's what makes the stories real and terrifying and all the more heartbreaking. Exactly. It could be us. It could be our sister. It could be our friend. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. And that leads me to what one of Sandy's friends has to say about her. Sandy was an amazing person. Every time you saw her, she was smiling. She made everyone feel like a friend. She literally never met a stranger. Sandy was so kind, warm, inviting. Someone you'd be proud to say was your friend. We grew up together, played brats together, played sports together. Sandy was a light for anyone who was lucky enough to have her in their lives. I'm thankful to have known her and to have been able to be her friend. That message was actually really hard to read. This is somebody who lost that friend that you can clearly tell that they loved so much. It sounds like she lost a part of her childhood when she lost Sandy. Another piece of Sandra's childhood comes to us in the form of a message from her fourth grade teacher. Her teacher says, Sandy was the sweetest girl. She only ever had kind things to say about others. She got along with all her classmates well. She worked hard and was eager to learn all she could. Her laughter and enthusiasm for life were contagious. Sandy was truly a joy to have in class, and I miss seeing her, as I know she would definitely have continued to return to visit me at school. My heart goes out to her family, as I hope the true person responsible for taking her beautiful life will be held accountable. And as a final piece about 
who Sandra was comes from her sister. Her sister gave us four words that describe Sandy. Those four words are caring, positive, laughter, helpful. And that gives you listeners an idea of what Natalie and I have been learning about Sandra throughout the past couple of weeks while we've been working on this episode. Thank you again to Alex for helping us gather those statements and get in touch with these people. And now back to a little bit more of Sandra's story. As Sandra's mom mentioned, Sandra attended cosmetology school after she graduated high school in 2011. She completed her cosmetology program And after that, she started her professional cosmetology career. Um, She was working part-time as a hairstylist at a local salon in 2014 at just 21 years old. Now, she was also working part-time as a waitress during the time that her case takes place as well. In August of 2014, Sandra's 21 years old. And like her mom also mentioned, she enjoyed being around her friends and letting loose and having a good time not unlike a lot of 21-year-olds. This particular night in August, she went to a friend's party and she met a guy. Because of the nature of this case, we won't be using this guy's actual name. We're gonna call him Eric. Eric was a veteran that had served in Iraq and Afghanistan and was a mutual friend of the party's host. So Sandra and Eric both were friends with this girl who was having people over. Right away at this party, a relationship starts budding. And soon enough, Eric and Sandra became boyfriend and girlfriend officially. In November of 2014, the pair moved in together. They stayed local in Oklahoma City, and they lived with a couple of roommates, two of whom were a couple that were friends of Eric and Sandra. Not long after moving in together, on Saturday, December 6th, 2014, Eric places a disturbing 911 call. This call takes place at 4.53 in the morning. He says, my girlfriend just shot herself in the head with a 12-gauge shotgun, to which the dispatcher says, is she alive? He says, no. Now, this audio can be heard on the documentary I listed in the show notes. It's part of the ID show called Still a Mystery, of which they feature this case. The exact season and episode number are listed in the show notes. As expected with a 911 call, first responders arrived. And when they arrived, they found Sandra no longer alive. She was in Eric and her bedroom, slumped against the wall. Beside her was a 12-gauge shotgun, the one that Eric had mentioned in the 911 call. It's determined that the shotgun wound to the head was the cause of death. Because of the suspicious nature of death, I mean, we have a 21-year-old, otherwise healthy girl with a shotgun wound to the head. A homicides unit was sent out to start an investigation. According to a former homicide detective for Oklahoma City PD, this is totally normal. If a death is even slightly suspicious in nature, a homicide is presumed until an investigation proves otherwise. So essentially, they rely on an investigation from a homicide unit to determine if a death is a death by suicide, not the person that's calling 911 or any obvious circumstances that may point to suicide. It is an investigation process before that is ruled. They're doing their due diligence. And rightfully so. Part of that due diligence was interviewing Eric. 
And while he's being interviewed in this unmarked police car early on the 6th, he tells the investigators that Sandra had been dealing with emotional issues. He mentions that she's been drinking and using other substances recently. He also claims that she had recently locked herself in the bathroom just a few days before her death and had conducted self-harm. I want to note here that Sandra had never been treated for depression or anything like that before. It was not said in the documentary, nor was it said by the friends and family that we connected to while researching this case. Eric goes on to further explain to detectives that he had accused Sandra of cheating on him. This accusation caused an argument, and because of this argument, he ended up crashing on the sofa. Around 3 a.m., Eric says that Sandra will come up asking him if they could talk, uh, presumably about the argument that they had had earlier. Maybe she wants to smooth things over more. Maybe now that cooler heads have prevailed, you know, continue this discussion in a more decent manner. Either way, they decide they're going to go into the bedroom to talk about it. And while they're talking about it, Eric says that he decided to take a cigarette break and leaves the bedroom to do so. This is when he tells detectives that he went into the living room to smoke his cigarette and he heard the gun go off. And that's when he runs into the bedroom and he found Sandra. He checked for her pulse and she had no pulse. He also mentions that after finding Sandra in that condition, he ran over to the roommates to make them aware of what had happened, but tells them to like stay put. And that's then when he calls 911. Eric also mentioned to investigators that he was the one that had purchased the gun that was found at the scene. He says that he purchased that gun along with a bow and arrow recently so that he and Sandra could go hunting together. And he actually says that he had just taught her how to use that gun the night before. The roommates that I mentioned that Eric ran over to to make them aware and tells them to stay put they confirmed to investigators that they didn't hear the gunshot and they weren't aware of the situation until Eric had woken them up. Sandra's death was ultimately ruled a suicide. Around 8.30 a.m. on the 6th, Sandra's parents were notified of her passing. Sandra's mom recalls this moment as a darkness, a darkness that I'm sure only a mother losing a child could understand. Sylvia, Sandra's mother, contrasts part of Eric's story, though, she says that Sandra had never held a gun in her life. So how could this even happen? To her, this is unbelievable. After detectives left Sandra's family home that morning, Eric called Sylvia. In this phone call, Sylvia hears his side of the story, his sequence of events that he holds as true. She asks to come over and see the scene. And if her daughter wasn't removed yet, to see her. Eric turns her down, though. He says no. He says, you don't want to see it, basically. Uh, Silvio quotes him saying, she blew her head and her brains are all over my bedroom. Right then, she knew something was off, that something was not right. The evening before her death, Sandra had confided to her family that Eric kept accusing her of cheating over and over and over again. And... Because of this instability and this mistrust in their relationship, she was planning to move home within a few days. She tells her dad that she didn't know how to break up with him, and it's just a terrible situation that we see women in all too often. Ultimately, her parents 
encourage a breakup and remind her that she's always welcome back home. So thus, Sandra ended up packing up some of her stuff and putting it in the garage, getting ready for her return home. That's really one of the things we talk about the most dangerous time in any abusive, and it seems like this was an emotionally abusive relationship, is at the end of it when they're leaving. That's so true. We hear about that and we see it in our cases, like you said, all the time. It's a very dangerous point in an abusive relationship. And Sandra was very clearly expressing that she was enduring emotional abuse to her parents. Following Sandra's death, her sister Jackie, her older sister, goes through Sandra's tablet. I love that. You know, it's investigator sisters, something's off, something's not right. I'm going through your stuff. I would totally be doing the same thing. Absolutely. So as she's going through the tablet, she makes her way to Sandra's Facebook messages. Within the Facebook messages, there were conversations between Eric and Sandra. And I'm not going to read a bunch of them to you, but it's not pretty. Here's an example. Me and you are about to have a bleeping problem. Guess you didn't learn your lesson last time. I'll be sure to step it up a notch. He's getting mad at her in this part of the conversation for being caught up at work and giving male coworkers rides home. It's utterly ridiculous. It almost sounds like a threat that he's issuing her as well. It's threatening and it's overbearing. She's at work and he's essentially hounding her in these messages. And I can't imagine what it feels like while you're just trying to work and get done with your shift. She was wanting to work as a cosmetologist, and this was while she was at her waitressing job. So she's probably not already as excited about this job as her other job. She's got to be here to make ends meet, and he's berating her. It can't be a comfortable situation for her. Now, it's no secret that Sandra's family had some feelings about the situation. They felt like something was off with Eric's story, and they just couldn't accept that this would be a suicide. So with that, they set up a Facebook page called Justice for Sandra. It's still up to this day. They took the story to media outlets uh, where they continued to express their concerns that they had about Sandra's death and that they hoped for further investigation. Um, And they also turned to a lawyer Mike Bellinger, for assistance on Sandra's case. Mike dives into the case, and he notices some discrepancies. First, he notices that Eric had told detectives that he was in the living room smoking, but Eric had told the mom when he had called her that morning that he'd been in the garage smoking, and obviously he wasn't in both places at once smoking. Further, the autopsy report showed no signs of self-harm, as Eric had told investigators. On December 8th, the lawyer, detectives, and the family got together to have a meeting where they could connect and go over the case. Badass big sis Jackie arrives at this meeting with a full-on binder. It is a huge binder full of social media messages and posts from Eric that showcase just how possessive, violent, and disturbing he was being. Police ultimately say that this proves that he was a pretty heinous boyfriend, but it didn't give them the proof that they needed that he was a murderer. It should be noted that detectives at the scene found no blood on Eric's clothing or on him besides his fingers. 
And this is consistent with the story that he told investigators, which was that he had checked her pulse when he found her. So essentially, he could have gotten the blood on his fingers when he was checking her pulse. The family is heartbroken to hear that there's not much that police could do in this situation. But a week later, a huge piece of information would be revealed. On December 16th, 2014, the Facebook group that the family had made received a private message. In this message, the sender tells the family that a girl named Holly Schustrom dated Eric as well, just three and a half years prior to when he was dating Sandra. And Natalie, this girl too, died mysteriously, and it was ruled a suicide. My jaw is on the floor. This is a game changer for me because now that we know Eric has this past with not one but two girlfriends who have died mysteriously and those deaths were ultimately ruled suicides, it really makes you question, did he have a role in what happened to these girls? And that's exactly what Holly and Sandra's families want to know. So let's learn a little bit about Holly. Holly was 22 and she was from Oklahoma City as well. The story goes that she died by suicide from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head while she was in her backyard in front of Eric on May 21st, 2011. After receiving the Facebook message and becoming aware of this story, Sandra's family contacts Holly's mom. Uh, Her name's Colleen, and they set up a time to meet. At this meeting, Colleen arrived, and she explained to Sandra's family that on the afternoon of May 21st, 2011, she was out shopping. Um, And that's when she received a phone call that Holly had allegedly shot herself in the head in front of Eric. Unfortunately, Holly passed the next day in the hospital, never regaining consciousness to tell her story. Holly's autopsy report confirmed a suicide. The family, though, like Sandra's family, had their doubts about that. They did not believe that this could have been a suicide. There were also discrepancies in Eric's story with Holly's case. Eric said that Holly died by suicide outside in the backyard. However, when Colleen returned home, there was blood on the living room carpet. The autopsy report also indicated that the gun was about a foot away when the fatal shot was fired. According to a homicide detective, this is not typical in most suicide cases. It's much more common to see that in suicides, that the gun is held much closer than a foot to the head in order to ensure a successful end to the life. Colleen also found some disturbing and threatening messages on Holly's phone, just like Jackie had found on Sandra's tablet. Apparently, Holly had been attempting to break up with Eric, just as Sandra had been. There's just so many similarities. Eric went by the Schustrom house a few days after Holly's passing, claiming that he needed to gather a few personal items that were left there. After he left the house, Colleen noticed that her daughter's cell phone was out and that all of Eric's texts had been deleted. So essentially, he deleted all of those threatening messages that the family had found. Again, it doesn't make Eric Holly's killer, but it does not look good for him. Right. Eric holds his innocence in both cases still, and he denied deleting any of the messages on Holly's phone. Holly's case remains ruled as a suicide. 
Jackie, Sandra's sister, breaks it down really well through an interview on the ID Discovery show, Still a Mystery, that I mentioned earlier. She says, in both cases, Eric is the only witness, and he's the person who calls 911. And honestly, after hearing what Colleen had to say about Holly's case, the family was pretty certain that Sandra's death was not a suicide. In May 2015, a journalist, a crime reporter, Juliana Keeping, offered to look into the case. She discovered that there was a third roommate that had not ever been interviewed. Eric did mention in the 911 call on the night of Sandra's death that there were three roommates. Um, He also mentioned Holly's death in that 911 call. This should have been a red flag that investigators connected. Um, Another red flag that the journalist discovered is that Eric was trying to rekindle an old relationship with an ex in the days leading up to Sandra's death. The ex wasn't having it, though. She basically told him to kick rocks. He wasn't happy with that, though. He would show up to her apartment, take pictures of her car, and he'd send them to show her that he knew where she lived, where she was, what she was doing, just to creep her out. She filed a restraining order because of this, and that restraining order was filed only three days after Sandra's death. What's more is that while living in Texas in 2008, the reporter discovered that Eric had a wife that had accused him of beating her. When police arrived, she was described as having visible signs of injury to her neck, but she did not pursue charges. The woman was not reached by the journalist for any kind of comments concerning Holly or Sandra's cases. After discovering that there was this third roommate, we'll call him Caleb, the journalist reached out to them. And she asked him just point blank, like, what happened that night? And he says that he was startled awake by the sound of the gunshot. He went out into the hallway to see what happened and what was going on. And in that hallway, he found Eric and the other male roommate speaking to one of the other roommates. And Eric asks, do you think it's problematic that I own a gun? His girlfriend's dead, and all he cared about was how he's going to look in the situation because he owns a gun. I'm fuming. This whole situation sounds shady, too. Things aren't adding up. I thought the roommate stayed in the bedroom, the one that we knew about, at least. So that's another thing that's, you know, a discrepancy. This journalist is pulling up all kinds of red flags. The article that she wrote is amazing, too. Uh, It's linked in the show notes. It has five chapters, Each of the chapters has to be searched separately uh, because for some reason, the links on the article don't work uh, to get to the subsequent chapters, but it's amazing. And if you want to learn even more about this case, definitely check that article from The Oklahoman by Juliana Keeping out. So back to the story and all of these red flags that Juliana, the reporter, is discovering. Caleb asks Eric where he was when Sandra shot herself. And he says the garage. That's the same thing that he told Sandra's mom, Sylvia. But it's not the same as what he told police. As we know, he told them that he had been in the living room smoking, not smoking in the garage. The journalist reached out for comment, but Eric was evasive. He said he never owned a gun, and she pressed him a little further about, well, you told the police that you purchased that gun that Sandra shot herself with. So what about that gun? And he hung up. In May of 2017, that same journalist I was mentioning, Juliana Keeping, that's when she released that five-part series article that I mentioned. Again, it's linked in the show notes. 
This article brought short-lived hope to the case. And in June of 2017, Sandra's case was reassigned to a cold case investigator. Unfortunately, it was closed again just a few weeks later without the investigator even speaking to the family. Oklahoma City PD stands by their decision that the deaths of Holly and Sandra were both suicides. Sandra's family hopes for the medical examiner to change the cause of death to unknown, uh, which which their lawyer thinks may be possible. And he stated this in an interview um, of the documentary. Supposedly, the boyfriend is going by another name. I picked this up on a Reddit thread. So take that with a grain of salt. But I could see why he may be going by another name right now, since this case has a lot of questions around it. Until anything further, that's all we've got on Sandra and Holly's cases. I'll end this episode, however, with a poem written by Sandra's aunt. We are all here for the same reason, the loss of a loved one at Christmas season. Sandra impacted so many people in a positive way. Who would have known December 6th would be her last day? She was a beloved daughter, sister, and friend. There are a multitude of hearts struggling to mend. She was only 21, so very young, just in her prime. It doesn't seem right. Now was her time. Even though Sandra was laid to rest, we must believe God knows best. Her angel wings are now in place. That is our Father's amazing grace. We will all again hear Sandra's laughter, and all who know there is a life after. That's where we'll leave the episode for this week. Until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries Pod on Instagram, at the Murder Diaries Pod at gmail.com and the murder diaries podcast.com. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us keep the good content flowing. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.